Welcome back to this episode of the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke, and I'm delighted to have back as my guest, Amy Woodall, Executive Vice President of Sandler in Indiana. Amy, thanks for coming back. Thanks for making it fun and easy. Last time we talked about dealing with difficult people. Today, what I really want to talk about is customer service and customer experience. What's the difference? What does good look like with both of them? Now, I know that when we were talking about this earlier, we talked about customer service typically being a very reactive activity. And I know that you're a major advocate for being proactive in order to put the fires out before they happen and cause any damage. So do you mind giving me a little bit of background into how you came to that conclusion and what the difference is in terms of the customer experience when you are proactive versus just reacting? Yeah, so I am very caught up on patterns and identifying root cause. And so when companies hire me to come in and really elevate their client satisfaction, ultimately, if they're set up to serve the company only or serve the customer only, meaning they're waiting for the customer to need them in order to provide value, they're waiting for the customer to call or send an email, have a question, etc. And when we look at what are the problems you're fielding most often, there are patterns there that I was like, you know what, if we were just to have these conversations earlier and often and with some proactive nature behind it, we really would not need to chase our tails. We wouldn't be losing customers as quickly as we're losing them. And we wouldn't have to put out the fires. And when we're constantly putting fires out, it does create emotional turmoil for the people that are in those positions as well. Customer service tends to have high turnover because it can be a high-stress position. And so if we're tired of doing the same thing and not getting better results, we've got to change what we're doing. Okay. And so can you give some examples of what impact that has? on the business and things like staff turnover, customer retention, recruitment costs? So it's sort of like for companies who are really focused on the sale and not as highly focused on the retention, it's a kind of like carrying around a bucket full of holes, right? You're filling it, but you're losing it as quickly as it's coming in. And you might not be seeing how it's affecting the bottom line. That turnover creates discord inside of organizations. And if you can't onboard people effectively to do the job because you're constantly turning over, that in itself creates more confusion and frustration on the customer's end. And it's really this domino effect where instead, if we just slowed down to speed up, if we just said, hang on, what if we didn't chase our tails for one minute and we looked at what kind of fires are we putting out consistently, and we train our people effectively how to set realistic expectations early and often, or how to reach out to the customer proactively, what could that gain us? And what I've been able to see in organizations, the shift that they've had is they have had an increase in engagement. And an increase... When you have increased engagement, your results are automatically going to increase. So an increase in engagement, an increase in retention, and an increase in client satisfaction. And those things are one and the same. Each of them do not happen in a vacuum. They are a domino effect. Tell me this then. What volumes of cross-sell, upsell, referrals are organizations able to generate if they are proactive and they're preventing these problems from happening in the first place? Well, typically when it comes to, especially on the customer end, right? You might have salespeople who are intentional about referrals. I will say not everybody. 
But if that <laughs> is put right, so they're just sort of waiting for people to think of them at 3 a.m., which that's creepy in itself. But if we're more intentional about you know, asking and showing up, intentionality automatically increases the results that we're getting. And Sandler, and you actually mentioned this before our call, is that what you're, what you're measuring is more likely to increase, right? And so if we're doing it with intentionality, then obviously you're going to have better results. If we're doing things by accident, then we have zero control over the scalability within that. The thing is that they're going to be... If you hire the wrong customer service people or the wrong people in that position, they can be terrified of, of being proactive and they might not do it. And so it's not just setting up the right systematic approach and setting up the right metrics. It's also making sure you have the right butts in the seats who are going to execute all of the good visions you have in mind. This is really interesting because, again, I'm working with a kitchen company at the moment. And they fit mid to high level kitchens and bedrooms. And what's interesting is historically they haven't phoned the customer up three months after, six months after to make sure everything's still perfect. Now you've just blown 30, 50, 100,000 pounds. You might not pick up the phone if there's something that's slightly wrong, but it's going to be that nagging doubt. And if you don't contact the vendor, then chances are when people talk about the kitchen, they'll say, well, yeah, it's really nice, but... And that's going to lose sales. So culturally, what is it that stops organizations from being proactive, taking the plunge and encouraging their people to invite criticism, invite feedback? So there are several factors there. One of them is timing. And it could be that they're so busy putting out fires other places that they don't have time to just slow down and do the proactive stuff. So they're saying, well, we don't have time. Our phone's ringing off the hook and depending upon the setup of the business. And it's sort of like, well, yes, and that's the catch-22. The reason your phone is ringing off of the hook and you don't have time is because you're not taking the time on the front end to be more clear or do follow-up or manage expectations. And so you're creating your own madness. That's one of the things is we're just not working smart. We're letting other things kind of dictate how we show up whether than us working intentionally. The other thing is just lack of knowing what to say, right? Lack of understanding what's the messaging and and how how can we approach this in a meaningful way rather than just the, hey, how's it going? Just checking in on you. Because that doesn't feel like it's making movement. That feels like it's a nice to do, not a need to do. And honestly, it's cultural of like, do we actively seek feedback? So I love the phrase, I wish I knew where it came from, but I love the phrase, expect what you tolerate. Okay, so if you are giving people metrics that are on the front lines of working proactively, of reaching out to people proactively, and yet they're not doing it, and you're buying their excuses of, I'm too busy to make it happen, and you're allowing that to happen, well, you can basically expect it. You're tolerating it. It's going to happen over and over again. And so there then has to be some buy-in as to why is this important to me and how are you going to hold me accountable and how are you going to train me to do it effectively so that I feel like you know when I'm calling up, I, I know exactly what it is I'm saying, doing, and, and what I'm trying to retrieve from that. And also creating a culture where negative feedback is seen as a good thing. I always recommend that people actively seek the negative because if you're not privy to it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means they're telling everyone else. We teach a rule, which is someone is always talking behind your back. They're just not necessarily saying what you want them to. 
I love that. What's really interesting is the expect what you tolerate. In Hamish Knox's book, Accountability, he talks about the manager being the fire chief and head arsonist. So they're putting out these fires and then with water from one pocket and lighting them with matches from another. And I see this happen a lot because people don't see the cold customer journey. So let's just move into the customer experience piece. In my book, the customer experience is anything that ever touches the customer, from cradle to grave, whether it's intentional or not. And it's all about putting the customer at the heart and soul of everything that you do. We're in business because of, not in spite of, the customer. But I don't really see customer experience. I mean, it's talked about. It's bandied around in the trade press. And occasionally you'll see some glitterati who's popularized a book about it. But I just don't really see it happening in the real world. Why is that? Customer experience is where we have to be willing to step out of our industry-specific knowledge and step into the customer's shoes and recognize that they don't experience this every day like we do. Let me give you an example. When I was younger and went to the dentist for the first time, I was probably five, which now is ancient because I'm pretty sure the minute a kid's tooth pops in, right, they're like rushing them. The dentists have now figured out how to you know, maximize that. So I, I was five. I didn't really know what the dentist was. I had no clue. I just knew it was scary. They had all of these weird tools and they made funny sounds. And so I was completely mortified after my experience at the dentist because I was so unsure of what was going to happen. And if you fast forward, 25 years later, when I have my own children and I'm taking them to the dentist for the first time, they were much younger. But the lady came out from behind the counter, got down on their level and said, you know, welcome to the dentist's office. And this is our waiting room. And here are our toys. And come back here with me. This is where our toy section is and the bathroom. And she walked them to every tool, showed them what it did, turned it on. Here's the sound it makes and really prepared their minds for the experience they were about to have at the dentist. So that once my kids were there, they loved it. Where They were not traumatized. Their brains were prepared for what they were about to experience. And in my mind, that is true customer experience. How do we prepare the customer for how to do business with us? What is this like? What can you expect? For so many people, again, I'm going to go back to that initial like lead into this, is that we live in the world we're in every day. And we take for granted that other people do not. And so we assume that our our very specific knowledge is common knowledge. And that is honestly where we light the fire. And then we force ourselves into customer service rather than customer experience. Customer experience can start when we begin at that starting point and say, how do we introduce them into doing business with us and make it right and easy? It's depressingly obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you. Service over this side of the pond is variable. Let's, let's be polite about it. In fact, I was on the phone to my own coach today, Howard, and he said, love the prospect, not your product. And it's a really insightful observation because the minute you're fixated on yourself, you become eye-centered, you're selfish. And mm-hmm. then judgment creeps in you start to see the customer or the prospect as the enemy, as an idiot. 
you are trying to convince them to buy your stuff because of the reasons you think they should buy it. And one of the most useful lessons I learned was you get reflected back what you project out. That piece that you talked about earlier about training the customer service reps to understand what to expect, how to handle it, to feel like the work that they're doing is showing progress. It's important. It's meaningful. In the recruitment phase, when you're advising your clients to how to recruit and what to look for, what are the key habits that we're looking for from a good customer service rep? You know, I would be listening for patterns of ownership. That's step one. Have they regularly owned? Are they telling you about how they've owned their failures, how they've owned, how they've moved on and progressed throughout their throughout their career? Because ownership is going to translate. How you do anything is how you do everything. If they have taken ownership in other spaces of their life, they're going to be more willing to take ownership over client satisfaction. If you're hearing a lot of finger point and blame in the interview process, then that should be a warning sign that they will finger point and blame in your organization. They're telling you that for a reason. And in interviewing, what we often do is we're just looking for, are you qualified based on previous experiences? Okay, that only tells one part of the picture. What we really want to understand is what are the patterns that they've had when it's come to adversity, challenges, you know, how they've handled things, et cetera, that's going to tell you how are they going to work under pressure and are they going to be willing to execute things that you ask them to do. Ownership is a big piece of it. If you have somebody who understands... So in customer care, we kind of paint this vision of, look, at there's three people kinds of people that exist in customer care. You have the jellyfish. And the jellyfish are the people who just say, I hate conflict, so I'm going to give you whatever the heck you want, even if it makes everybody else's life more difficult in the organization. So they're your people on the front lines who consistently overpromise, and everybody else has to clean it up. So we want to make sure that we're not hiring jellyfish. Jellyfish in your organization, they're going to be great with people, but they will have zero opportunity to have equal business stature, to help realign expectations. They are just going to be a yes ma'am, yes sir kind of employee. Okay? Then we, on the other end, we have the jellyfish. That's no good. You have the brick walls. The brick walls are the ones who put company policy above client satisfaction. It sounds like this. A customer calls in, they want XYZ, and they say, we don't do that. That's not our policy. That's not how things work around here. Right? And so... On the flip side, where the jellyfish is more customer-centric and gives the customer anything that they want, and it can be to the downside of the company, the brick wall gives everything that the company wants to the downside of the customer. And so you want to hire people who know how to show up with the backbone, who can be firm yet flexible, who understand the importance of customers' satisfaction. They're not bringing the ego in of like, oh, well, our customers need us more than we need them. Right? That's not going to fly. But then also understand how to delicately push back when customers are difficult or out of alignment. And to be, it's a really, it's a delicate dance to be able to do to keep clients happy and also protect the growth of the organization. My wife fell in love with your sentence last time, which was you can tell someone to go to hell. And if you do it right, they'll say the weather's lovely there this time of year. Yes, that's right. And that's what you need. Somebody who understands how to have that sort of directness with tact and also 
is really going to have to know how to develop great loyalty with the customer as well. So it's a knack that somebody doesn't have to have it all figured out. But if you're hiring someone who understands already how to take ownership, you can train them on the rest of that stuff. Okay, so this is about being nurturingly assertive. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Love the way you put that. This then raises another question around principles. What are the core principles and values that great customer service lives by? In America, we used to have this saying of the customer's always right. And I think that that is BS because customers are people, they're people and people are wrong. And so my theory that I share is the customer is not always right, but it's often our fault when they're wrong. And I'll say it again, the customer is not always right, but it's often our fault when they're wrong. And the reason is that we did not do a good job on the front end of realigning expectations so that they understood how this process works, right? Many customers believe... I mean, and very innocently, I have been guilty of this as a consumer. They have false expectations about timelines, about quality, about what service looks like because they're going to associate either their last experience with a company like you and assume you operate the same way, or they have zero background and they're just making stuff up. And so when the customer's wrong, we have to identify how, how is this our fault because we didn't realign expectations. That's one thing that I would certainly uh, encourage companies to put into place. And what about other values? What, what are the values that underpin great customer service? I love the piece that it's often our fault when they're wrong. What else? So some other values, and I actually I did a video not long ago about this, is that customer service is everyone's job. Client satisfaction is everyone's job. It is not a department. Just like sales, I really think that organizations, when it's done right, the entire culture should be sales and client success driven because both go hand in hand. So that's another value that I recommend companies would put into place that client satisfaction is not a department. (laughs) It's an attitude of the organization. And where does that start? Obviously at the top. The thing is that customers exist both internally and externally. And that's the other piece. When I'm hired in to do work with companies, I will tell you, they might say, Hey, Amy, can you help us on this end of helping dealing with our customers more effectively? And 9 times out of 10, Marcus, I find that their real challenge is internal customer care and internal customer acknowledgement. And if we, until we can fix that, the external is not going to be effective. And so also understanding that customers are anyone that you have to touch in order to do your job effectively. So that could be the accounting department, the purchasing department, it's sales. And how you treat your internal customer is going to affect the satisfaction of your external customer. Richard Branson always says this, you know, your employees are number one, your customers are number two, and you come a very poor third. And again, I think in terms of management, it's really important to understand this whole thing about service. Can you define what you mean by what you mean by service? Service is understanding how to put ourselves aside and truly understand and acknowledge the needs, the concerns, the frustrations, 
the wants, etc. of the, the customer. What do they need here? What's the, it's going to that neutral place of saying, I am not going to become emotionally engaged in what, how I need other people to behave, but I'm going to really be here for you. What can I do for you? How can I help you? Why is this important to you? It's having an understanding of how it affects the customer beyond even the six inches that you can see in front of your face. So I think in that state, it is being really curious, thinking strategically on behalf of the customer. It's not just waiting for them to need you. If you're waiting for them to need you, you are too late. And your best customer is your competition's top prospect. So we've got to always keep that in mind of how are we making sure we're top of mind before they need us. Because when they need us, it's typically because we screwed something up and now we're having to go back in and clean up a mess. In your experience, how much does that typically cost a business? What sort of percentage of revenues are wasted because they're not preempting problems and they're having to put fires out and remediate? The number that I know most specifically is that it's so much more costly to add new customers than it is to retain the ones that you have. So an average of a 5% increase in client retention can almost double your profitability just based on how much time resources it takes to acquire new companies or new clients. And so that would be the statistic that I think is really driving of saying, hey, your sales team can be going out and killing it. And that's amazing. But what are we doing to make sure that we're retaining everything that they're bringing in so that we can really see growth and and have profitability on that end? I saw some research and I can't remember the source, but it was about six weeks ago. And it said that the cost of acquiring a new customer Years ago, they used to say between six and nine times. And now they're talking between six and 25 times. Now we have full marketing teams where that might have not always existed before. And what's your bandwidth there? How much are you paying them per hour? What's the time that they're spending in on trying to acquire these new? How much time are they on social media? What's that costing you? I mean, we really, there's so many factors that go into what it takes to just get somebody to make our phone ring. Right. Yeah. So if we know that there are people who are already happily paying us, that had better be where we're putting a good amount of attention and not forgetting about them. I'll give you an example. I don't know if you have satellite companies. We have some satellite companies here in the US that are constantly putting out these really great deals for their new customers. If you're a new customer, never signed up with us before, you can have this amazing deal. And I called one of them as an existing customer and said, Hey, that really great deal. I would like to have that. And they said, well, no, you're a current customer. That doesn't apply for you. And so what they were telling me is, we don't value you. We want new because they're more valuable to us. So instead, you're going to pay us double what these new people are going to pay. That was the day I canceled my service with them. And I can't be the only ones. And that, how much they spent on that advertising and the commercials and all of the hubbub to only tick off the people who have been loyal, how many times do we do that inadvertently with our current client base where we just we forget about them? We take them for granted. Well, I think there's partly taking them for granted and also counting on inertia, people's laziness. But it leaves a sour taste in their mouth. I mean, we have exactly this problem. My wife and I were only having that conversation a couple of days ago because it grates her when she sees that. I'm on the other end of the spectrum that I can't be bothered. But Um, (laughs) Okay. So talk to me about the onboarding process, because I think it's really important that recruitment is just one aspect and you set up a new hire to fail 
or succeed in that first 90 to 120 days. What are your recommendations around a good onboarding process for customer service? Here is actually where so much of that domino effect happens, Marcus, is that A, maybe we make a not great hire because we're desperate. And so therefore, because we're desperate, as soon as we hire them, we throw them to the wolves because we need them on the phones right away or we need them in action right away. And because we do that, they're not really equipped to handle situations. And so the customer isn't getting what they need. And so then they leave. And the people internally are burnt out because they feel like they're constantly putting out fires. And then that person turns over. We're causing our own madness and we don't recognize it. So by stepping back and saying, even if we're in desperate need of a body to help us field this, how can we make sure we set this person up for success so that we're not repeating this over and over again? One of the first things that that new person needs to know and understand is your industry-specific information. Okay, So if you're in a highly technical field, they have to have some rudimentary understanding of technically what it is that you do or what it is that you provide. Everyone learns differently. So by having a one-dimensional onboarding approach, you are going to lose a part of your audience. You have to understand how do they learn most effectively? Are they auditory? Are they visual? Are they kinesthetic? Because we inadvertently teach the way that we learn. And that's only going to fit for our specific audience. We have to recognize how do they learn? What ends up happening if we're not understanding that is that we're teaching someone something and they never get it. And we think that they're stupid. And it's not that they're stupid. You just weren't talking their learning language. Step one is... Yeah. The step one is identify how they learn. Are they visual, auditory, kinesthetic? Step two is make sure that they understand what it is that you do and they understand your internal processes. Have them sit for a few hours each day in each department so that they understand their internal customers and that they don't feel like they're automatically in a silo as soon as they start off. Give them permission to fail. Give them best practices of what works. Set realistic expectations. It's no different than having a really great client-centric onboarding. When we onboard our clients, just like that dentist's office of walk them around, help help them feel comfortable with what everything is. Don't just throw them to the wolves. It's no different, right? Like Having that same systematic approach for onboarding with your internal people is going to be just as effective. Really interesting because certainly when you're recruiting salespeople. In fact, I, th- I think this is borne out across pretty much every job function. The first four months, the new hire is deciding, is this the job I was sold? Is my boss a total ass? Do I like the people I'm working with? Can I do this job? Do I like the people I'm having to interact with? Do I feel like I fit? Do I regret having left my previous role? And in that first four months, the employee is putting the employer and in particular their manager on probation. Mm -hmm. I think employers forget this. The other thing that's really struck me is that somewhere between 60 and 80%, and actually most of the research is nearer the 80% of people don't leave their job or their company, they leave their manager. So what are the qualities that make an outstanding customer service manager? Manager is someone who understands effectively how to coach and not tell. I was just doing a, a workshop with a group of leaders yesterday, coaching through conflict. 
And I encourage them, just like we spoke earlier, of go actively seek negative feedback. See where people are struggling. Go find out where it is that they're having a hard time because you can't fix what's not acknowledged. A really good leader allows people to mess up, but they don't sort of shame them for it. Instead, they say, Oh, cool. What a great lesson learned. Hey, if you could go back and do it again, what would you do differently? And now that you're out of it and we're not emotionally engaged, what takeaways do you have? If you had to train somebody else how to do this better, how would you do that? Instead, they're curious and they coach through questioning, not through telling. What happens if we're a manager that's constantly saying, you're fixing problems for people, we're constantly like, you're going to go do this and you've got to do that. And if we're constantly telling them what to do, we're inadvertently fixing the problems for them and we develop learned helplessness. And then we have an entire department who cannot function without us being there. And so, but we've created that, right? So you've become a bottleneck, you're a rescuer, you're helping without boundaries, probably without even having permission because then people don't feel like they can do anything without you either because of learned helplessness or because you'll then interfere. Don't do it this way, do it this way. So that diminishes people at an identity level. So that must have a massive impact in terms of turnover. I mean, the thing is people want to feel empowered. The way we empower them is by allowing them to use their brain. Okay? If we're constantly solving and fixing for them and that we're telling them, we don't trust you you know, to, to do your own decision-making. There was a group a couple of years ago, I went in to work with about a group of 40 customer service people. And the first question I asked them was, do you feel empowered in your role? And to a person, they all said no. And as we had a chance to work together for a year or two, I asked that question again, do you feel empowered in your role? They all looked at me like I had three heads and they said, well, yes, of course. And what changed was A, the way that we help them see ownership and what they're able to own and getting out of their own victimhood that they can bring to the table. But we also taught the managers to stop rescuing, to allow them to use their knowledge, allow them to use their strategic thinking in order to fix things. And when people feel more empowered, they do better work. This ties back in with the onboarding process stat flashed across my screen a couple of hours ago saying that only 12% of employees surveyed said that their company had a good onboarding process. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't happen is because the managers are run ragged. They're overstretched. They don't have time for the new kid. I remember when I joined a couple of the companies that I was foolishly employed by in the past, And my onboarding process was sit in a room for three hours reading an operations manual. I've got to be honest, on both occasions, I just dozed off. Then I had to skim read because, you know, five minutes before they were due to come in and I wasn't snoring too loudly, I had to give some vague account. And it wasn't an onboarding process at all. It was like being told, hello, congratulations, you are one. And I think managers make some fundamental mistakes. Compromising on recruitment is buying a management problem down the road. A manager's job is to hire the best people and then get the best out of them. And you don't do that by being a bottleneck. You don't do that by doing their job for them and interfering and rescuing and disempowering them. Because that sends a terrible message, which is, I don't trust you. And you have to earn trust. So if we look at the best of the best that you've worked with, whether they started out that way or you trained them into it. What were their personal qualities? What were their values, the managers? 
of the managers, there has to be a willingness that they admit that they could be part of the problem. Okay. So there has to be some humility they're bringing to the table saying, Hey, you know, I'm good at what I do, but I don't know everything. And, and how can you teach me? There's a, has to be a willingness to learn because if that is not there, they're simply going to defend all of their bad habits and whoever is, you know, trying to teach them or groom them or whatever, someone else will always be at fault. So a willingness to learn is definitely a key of a good manager. Also, I mean, a willingness to say like, look, I don't need all of the glory. What managers can do sometimes because they're seeking to feed ego is that they can take credit for everything that their team does. And a really good manager, someone who shows up more as a leader than a manager is someone who says, we are in this together. Like we either all win together or we all lose together. They don't throw their team under the bus. You know, they really work as a unit. That's definitely important along the way. And along with that learning thing, they're willing to learn from their people and accept negative feedback. If you want a culture that is willing to take negative feedback from customers and not be take it personally and all of that, we have to eat our own dog food, if you will, to speak Dave Matson talk. And we have to be able to do the same thing internally and welcome potentially negative feedback because again, we cannot change what we don't acknowledge. If we look at the effect, the domino effect of a lack of clarity at the top in terms of what's expected, what good and what bad looks like, then it ripples down into from senior management to middle management. And we're then looking at a culture where you get what you tolerate and you deserve what you tolerate, where people in senior positions are taking the glory then that disempowers the customer service reps who are frontline facing. They don't feel valued. That then has a ripple effect into the customer's experience because you get reflected back what you project out. And that lack of engagement then translates into customer dissatisfaction or customer loss and customer turnover. And then the pressure is put on sales to go get more customers. And so we're just repeating the same. (laughs) Yes. Have you come across companies where lack of customer service culture has actually brought the business down? For sure. Consistently, when there's companies that just... And they're focusing on the wrong end of the problem, right? That you're coming in and you're like, well, our people are... our, Our customers are leaving. So teach our people how to be better with customers. Okay. That's 10% of the problem. That only becomes amplified in its effectiveness when we fix the root cause. And the root cause is management, leadership, just lack of a culture of, of customer engagement. It's not just what's happening on the back end. So as we teach in sales, when it comes to leading and lagging indicators, right? The lagging indicator is your customer leaving. That's not the real problem. We have to trail it back into what's the, the root cause. And it's almost always management, messaging, even you mentioning being clear about what good and bad looks like. So many companies don't even have that. There's this ambiguity between what our version of what right and what wrong is, is different person to person. And so there's no continuity or consistency and even how that is being you know, managed or being held accountable. And it all, to me, Marcus, really trails back to intentionality. If we start with intentionality, we can build things on purpose with purpose. This is interesting. Uh, Next week, I'm interviewing Mike Adams, the author of Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. And he's got a lovely 
concept in there, which is that it's the salesperson's job to tell stories where the customer is the hero and they are the Sherpa, the guide. What do you teach your clients about storytelling? Because I imagine customer service, storytelling could be incredibly powerful. Yeah, third-party stories. I mean, that, that hits home with our need for social proof. Just as humans, we are wired for social proof. We're wired to say, if other people like me are doing it, I'm more willing to listen. And so when it comes to whatever part of the process you're in with customer care, that, that client satisfaction, customer experience, if you're using third-party stories of saying, you know, typically, let's just say that you're in an industry where you have to ship things to customers. Lots of people in that world, right? Let's just say that you're talking to a customer and you want to make sure that you're under-promising so that you can over-deliver. And you say, you know what, listen, so we have a ship date of Thursday. But can I tell you something? Sometimes when we tell customers that Thursday is going to be the ship date, things can happen. Things can get caught up in customs. Things can get pushed back. So if you're relying on our shipment in order to do your next bet, you know what? What most of our clients do is they just give it a two-day leeway. They kind of give themselves a two-day buffer. And so what you're doing is you're educating and realigning expectations by using those third-party stories. And in turn, we're also... That's a train. We're kind of training our customers on what it is that they should expect. So certainly, social proof, third-party stories is huge in just being able to stop fires before they start. Excellent. So let's start wrapping up. In terms of the key lessons that I'm taking away from here, the first thing is have systems, processes, and clear intentionality in order to inoculate your customer by helping establish clear expectations. Make sure that they, every time that someone from your organization touches them, either by phone or in person or in writing, there is a good reason that benefits them, that you're there to serve them, and that throughout the process... They're always front and center. Your job is to help them get their needs met. It doesn't necessarily mean that you roll over. And what it does mean is that you look for something that is good for them and good for the company. And you're able to clearly establish boundaries and draw a line between what's acceptable and not acceptable. And to do that in a nurturing but assertive manner so that you deliver it with tact and you ensure that the customer doesn't feel like their needs are being railroaded. They don't feel like they're a second-class customer because you've got their money and now you're moving on to someone else. Make sure that you train your people to genuinely care, to take responsibility, to listen for what's not being said as much as what is being said. And Make sure that we're taking responsibility for when the customer is wrong, that we understand the part that we played in making them wrong. And really focus on keeping customers rather than going out and chasing the net new because the lifetime customer value is substantially more worth more to the business than going out and incurring the massive cost of hunting for new business. Is that a pretty fair summary? I'd say you hit it. Tell me this. You mentioned that you've just done some videos. Tell us where can we find those? So I'm on LinkedIn under Amy Woodall. 
And I don't know if you have links or anything that you put on your podcast. I'll put those on there. Yeah, yeah. Link LinkedIn is where I post videos typically once weekly. Okay. And have you written anything? <laughs> I mean, thank you cards, greeting cards. Um, there are actually some articles that are attached to my LinkedIn as well. Excellent. Okay. And are there any great books on customer service and in particular customer experience? You know, one, it's an oldie but a goodie. It's called A Complaint is a Gift. And that's a good place to start in just shifting a cultural mentality of how you deal with negative feedback. And in terms of the psychology of customer service, is there anything that you could recommend that people can reference for that? Honestly, any behavior books. I think that if you just become a student of human behavior, you're going to learn something that can be translated, whether it's in sales or in management or any other piece of that. I really love Daniel Pink's To Sell as Human. And he talks about the behavioral science of that. And that's certainly applicable within customer service as well. I'd recommend two very good books. One is called Just Listen by Mark Goulston. That's G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. And he wrote another fantastic book, which is Talking to Crazy. More about talking to yourself first off, because often that voice in your head can do you some serious harm and get you into trouble. Amy, if you were telling your 25-year-old self, giving your 25-year-old self some advice so you weren't treading on landmines and swallowing grenades, what would you tell her? I like the saying of, if your foot hurts, you're probably standing on it. And so if we are facing something that's keeping us up at night, we have to look at what we can do and not where our hands are tied. So Amy, thank you so much again. Very insightful, very helpful. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'll put the links for Amy's videos and LinkedIn profile up and the book recommendations. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye.